Welcome to Bible class from St. Paul's Lutheran Church in De Pere. And to all who are in the gym this morning and to all who are listening on KFUO. Today the lesson we'll be looking at is from 1 John chapter 5, beginning in verse 13 and going through the end of the book. Would you join me in a word of prayer? Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, in the beginning was the Word. And that Word became flesh and dwelt among us, full of grace and truth. In Him was life and light. Light in the midst of the darkness of the world that we find ourselves in this morning. Today we, we come because you have made, made known to us your Son, our Savior, Jesus. We pray that all who hear and study your word would know him with joy and confidence of your salvation. We pray that you would give us your Holy Spirit to strengthen us to live in the truth in a world that claims to be so wise, but indeed has become so foolish. We remember today the people of the Ukraine, their leaders, leaders of Russia, the entire world during these days of warfare and turmoil. We pray for peace. We pray these things. We pray all things through your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, truly one God, now and forever. Amen. This morning we're going to be wrapping up the book of First John. Going back to the beginning, you may remember that John was dealing with a group of what sometimes are called pre-Gnostics, but they were definitely people who were separating themselves from the church because they claimed that they had a special knowledge, that they were more advanced than the ordinary Christian. They knew things. But the rest of the church didn't know. And in times like those, people within the church were, were questioning. Are, is that the truth, or do I have the truth? It was causing them to doubt, tempting to fall away. And isn't that the age-old sin, going back to the very beginning? What was it? that really caused Adam and Eve to fall into sin. It was when people questioned God's word. Is it the truth or isn't it? Do we know or don't we know? And once we let loose of God's word, of course there is doubt and of course there is sin. We live in a world today full of people who claim to know it all. And they raise all kinds of questions and all kinds of doubts for us Christians. Do you really believe that word? Is that word which you study again today, the word that you hear in worship, is that really all the truth or is there more? Are you being naive, you Christians, in taking this word at face value, believing it truly is the word of God? So they make us look and feel as though we might be out of touch. That we're unsophisticated and foolish. I can't help but think that that's part of what's having such a drastic impact on the church today. 
Well, St. John is dealing with that in 1 John, and he's bringing it all now to a beautiful conclusion. And it's like the, the old pastor who is, has just one last thing he wants to say to his people, to encourage them, to reassure them, to make sure that, that they knew and understand the truth so that they would remain firm. And so he's writing this letter to his beloved children. To, to the people that he loved. He wanted them to be sure. And so chapter 5, verse 13 begins, I write these things to you who believe so that you may know. He wants to give them that certainty. He wants to answer their questions. He wants to overcome those doubts. He wanted to give them assurance so that they would remain faithful. And this, this reminds me so much of, of the beginning of the ending of the Gospel of St. John. He said the same kind of thing. He said, Jesus did many other signs, many other miracles in the presence of His disciples, which are not written in this book. But He said, these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you might have life in His name. As He winds up the story of Jesus, after the, the assurance of the resurrection, He says one more time, I want you to believe this, so that you might have everlasting life. So again, John 5.13 says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life, that you might know, that you might be absolutely certain that you have eternal life. Back in the 1970s, there was a book that had a huge impact on the church, all churches. It was written by Dr. James Kennedy, a Presbyterian pastor in uh, Coral, uh, Coral Ridge, Florida. It was, called Dial it was called Evangelism Explosion. Because it had some problems from a Calvinistic point of view, that book was rewritten for Lutherans into a program called Dialogue Evangelism. Do any of you remember Dr. Leroy Biesenthal? What a character this man was. But, but he put this in Lutheran terms so that we could all understand it. It was a way in which pastors could teach themselves and their lay people how to witness in a simple way. It gave them an outline, things to do and things to say in order to reach their neighbors. And there were many churches that used this in those days, making calls regularly. Going, going out, we, we had um, records from the sanitation department about all the new people who moved into our community and registered for trash pickup. And then our church would go and visit those people. The, the new trash people. And so regularly we had these classes and people trained to go and make these calls. 
And it was all based on a very simple question. After gaining the confidence of these people, getting to know them and their lives a little bit, you reached a point where you were ready to dialogue. And it began with a simple question. If you were to die tonight, are you absolutely certain that you would go to heaven? And we'd wait for a response, and the response would come back in in all kinds of different forms. People would say, well, I think so. I hope so. No, I really don't know for sure, because I, I know that I haven't been and done everything God wants me to be. Can anybody really know whether they're going to heaven? Or is that just some hope in the future? That was then followed up by a second question. And the question was, if you were to die tonight and to stand before God and He would say to you, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say? And the responses would often come back, I've tried my best. I'm not as bad as the guy down the street. I go to church Eh, a couple Sundays a month, Christmas and Easter anyway, and I send my kids to Sunday school and I give a few dollars to the church and I, I try to be good to my neighbor and on and on they'd go telling us about how they thought they had earned the right to enter into heaven. And that would be the opening then by which we could respond to them with a good news of Jesus And there was a simple outline that we would follow and tell them that, yes, they could be absolutely certain that they were going to heaven. I think those questions worked back in the days when we lived in a church culture. Those questions worked when when everybody believed in God, when everybody knew that they should be going to church even though they weren't. Everybody somehow knew that one day they were going to be accountable to God. But about the 1990s, the question was no longer effective. As the world was changing around us and people were no longer believing that there was a God, or that they would one day be held accountable, or even that there was a heaven. And and so the, the method was dropped by many churches at the time. But I can't help wondering if today, in the midst or near the end of this pandemic, when we have all seen neighbors die, healthy people as well as sick people, strong people, poor people, all different colors of people, it's seems like everybody is vulnerable now, whether you've been vaccinated or not. And maybe it's a good question to be asking once again. If you were to die tonight, are you absolutely certain that you would go to heaven? And if you were to die tonight, and God would say to you, why should I let you into heaven? What would you say? John has the answer for you right here. He says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know, beyond all doubt, you may know that you have eternal life. 
There is our confidence. Yes, we can really be certain. Because our salvation is not dependent upon what we've done. It's not dependent upon the kind of people we've been. It depends on faith. And that faith is a gift of God, not because of us, lest we go on boasting. We're saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone. Notice what's... What St. John says, though, he says not, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you might know that someday you're going to have heaven. He says, I write these things so that you may know that you have, right now, you have eternal life. And what does that mean for us then? If we know we have eternal life right now, if we know that we really are standing in the presence of God each and every day of our lives here and now, that we're not just talking about a Jesus who lived 2,000 years ago, but we, we believe in Jesus who is sitting at the right hand of our Father, who is ruling over all things in heaven and on earth, who is ruling for the sake of His church. You have that right now. Would it change the way you live? Would it change the way you look at the pandemic? Would it change the way you look at the warfare going on in the Ukraine right now? How would it impact you as you go about your daily life? What would happen to all of your worries and all of your cares and all of your fears if you knew that you have eternal life? You have it right now. You're living in the presence of Jesus. That's the confidence that John wanted his people to have. As his last words to them, my dear children, my beloved, I want you to know you have eternal life. And that makes all the difference in the world. Then he goes on from there. What else do we know? There are lots of things. And, and look at, as we go on at the number of times following these verses. He says, we know. We know. We know. And so in verses 14 and 15, And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we've asked of him. We know that we can pray with absolute confidence. We know that our God hears and answers our prayers. We know. But aren't there times when we wonder? Does he really hear? Does he, he really answer? There's, there's these times when, when we raise our voices to God in prayer and there seems to be this silence. We wonder, God, are you there? Are you listening? Do you love us? Do, will you answer us? Well, John says, you know. How do we know? 
Well, there are lots of scripture verses that we could turn our attention to. For example, Ephesians 3, verse 12. St. Paul writes, referring to Jesus, he says, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. We can go boldly. We can be confident that God hears us because we are praying through Jesus. Matthew 7, verse 7, Jesus said, ask and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be open to you. There's a promise. Do we know it? Do we believe it? John 14, verse 13. That night in the upper room with his disciples, Jesus said, I will do whatever you ask in my name. Pretty powerful promise. That's why we pray in the name of Jesus. Does God really hear and answer every prayer? Jesus just said, if you pray in my name. St. John in this passage says, according to his will. We always end our prayers when we're talking about earthly things by, by, by saying, if it be your will. We don't have to pray those things when we're praying for spiritual things. We know it's God's will. But when it comes to earthly things, things like healing, uh, things like peace, we always ask if it be your will. Sometimes I, I fear that we, we throw that in thinking we're giving God an out. You know, if, if God doesn't answer the prayer we want him to, well, it must not have been his will. We really didn't expect an answer anyway. Uh, that's not what Jesus is teaching us. And his, in the prayer that he did teach us, he said, when you pray, pray like this. And there was always the words, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's not giving a God an out. That's saying, God, align our will with your will. God, don't change necessarily the things around us, but change us so that we might be in accord with your will. So we know. We know according to all these promises, all these passages in Scripture, that whatever we ask according to God's will, whatever we ask in Jesus' name, God does hear and God does answer. So as we face the issues in our life once again, we don't need to be concerned about what's going on in the world. We don't need to be concerned about those Christians who have left the church. We know God's will, and we know that he will answer our prayers. Any thoughts so far? Any questions about anything we've covered? The confidence that we have as Christians is critical. There are more that we know as Christians today. This next section is going to get a little troubling. Verses 16 and 17. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, 
He shall ask God, and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I don't know, say that we should pray about that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. Wait a minute. There are sins that don't lead to death? Prophet Ezekiel said, the soul that sins shall die. St. Paul wrote, the wages of sin is death. There's no qualifier there about some sins and not others. Book of James says, whoever keeps the whole law but offends in just one, one part, one little part, sin against it all. So how can we say that there are some sins that lead to death and some sins that don't lead to death? Some people use this passage to say there are different kinds of sin. There are venial sins, which aren't all that serious, and there are mortal sins that will nail you. How would we ever know the difference? There's nothing in Scripture that talks about venial sins or mortal sins. Sin is sin. John says the same thing here. What's it talking about? Sins that don't lead to death. Well, let me share with you the thinking of of some people. Some people believe that a mortal sin destroys charity in the heart of a man by a grave violation of God's law. It turns away from God. A mortal sin results in privation and sanctifying grace that is of the state of grace. In other words, if you die while you're sinning, you're no longer in a state of grace. You're not forgiven unless you have the opportunity to repent. So if you're in a car accident and you're doing and you're speeding while you're doing it and you don't have the time to ask God for forgiveness you're out of luck that's a mortal sin what makes that mortal there are others the same group would say one commits a venial sin And when in a less serious matter he doesn't observe the standard prescribed by the moral law, or when he disobeys the moral law in a grave manner, but without full knowledge or complete consent. And so you don't know you're sinning, it's not a grave matter. Even though you're doing something that is serious, in the eyes of God, that's not so bad. Venial sin weakens charity and merits temporal punishment. So for venial sins, you get punishment now, but not eternally. Deliberate and unrepentant venial sin deposes us little by little to commit mortal sin. So little sins lead to big sins. However, venial sin does not break the covenant with God. With God's grace, it's humanly reparable. Venial sin does not deprive the sinner of sanctifying grace, friendship with God, charity, and consequently, eternal happiness. 
That's all these little sins don't tick God off bad enough that he's going to stop loving us or giving us heaven. They look at our our verse that we're looking at, and they look at words like Ephesians 5. Ephesians 5, verses 3 through 6. Sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among us, as is proper among the saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, But instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is, idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Apparently there are some pretty serious sins, St. Paul would say. Among them, sexual immorality, impurity, covetousness. Those are worse sins than other sins. They cut you off from God. They cut you off from the church. What are we to make of venial sins and mortal sins? Yeah. That's right. He's talking about confidence here, isn't he? Yep. I've never heard those that terminology. Yeah, Roman Catholics believe that. I wasn't going to go there, but yes, that's you hear that among Catholic people often. There are venial sins and there are mortal sins. The scripture doesn't talk about venial and mortal sins. Yep, you won't hear it in a Lutheran church. Sin is sin. Okay. All sin is lawlessness. All sin is death. James, uh, John says that very thing here. All wrongdoing is sin. Sin is sin. Sin is separation from God. It is breaking God's law. It's a... Uh, Setting yourself against God in any way. Sin leads to death. All sin. But you can be confident. You can be confident that all sins are forgiven. But what are we to make of this? What's the real issue that, that John is talking about here? What should we do if we see a fellow Christian who's sinning? Should we simply ignore that person and let him go on with his sin? Should we call that sinner out? Should we shun that sinner or should we gossip about that sinner? What is St. Paul saying? Is St. John saying to us? If you see a fellow sinner sinning, pray for him. Pray for him. What it's really talking about is spiritual restoration. What, what is the church to do? How are we to serve our fellow Christians when it's clear that they are sinning? 
it begins by praying. Praying that the person might see the wickedness of their ways. Praying that God would use us in some way to bring that sinner back into the fold. St. Paul wrote to the Galatians, chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. He said, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any sin, any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourselves, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Our duty as a Christian community to restore. Not in a proud, arrogant way, not by shunning, not by gossiping, but St. Paul said, do it in a spirit of gentleness. That ever hard to do? You better believe it's hard to do. What do you do when, when your son or daughter is no longer worshiping in the church? What do you do when, when your, your friend is, is doing something clearly you know is wrong and he knows is wrong and he, and he thinks he's getting by with it? What is your duty as a Christian as part of a Christian community toward your fellow sinner. The point is, restore him. Restore him in a spirit of gentleness. For John, in those days, these people were falling away. And they were raising all these questions, and they were acting so proud and arrogant. So what were those Christians still in the church supposed to do? Write them off? See you later. You're out of here. We don't want nothing to do with you anymore. Point was, bring them back. Bring them back into the fold. And you do that beginning with words of prayer. You know, we are, are, are good, I think, at praying for the people within our congregations and, and for things going on in the world around us. We try, pray for a lot of of physical things, as we listen to uh, the, the pastoral prayers on Sunday morning, the prayers of the church, and we, we find out who has been sick and we pray for them, and we pray for those who are celebrating anniversaries and for those who are grieving the death of loved ones. What about praying for the spiritual needs of the people in our congregation? There was a time years ago and I did a tongue-in-cheek, but it got a strong reaction. The, the service was on the radio, and I prayed for those who were still at home in bed that morning. And, and people in the congregation laughed about it. But why wouldn't we pray for those who no longer feel the need to come to worship? That's what St. John is encouraging here. Pray for their spiritual needs. Pray for those who are separating themselves. Pray for those who are weak, those who are doubting, those who are fearful. Pray for them. And the promise is, God will answer. God will restore. Pray for the spiritual needs of your fellow members. How encouraging is that? 
has it ever happened to you that, that you're struggling with something going on and a loved one says, I'll pray for you? And what does that do for you? Doesn't that encourage and uphold you and, and, and thank them for what they're doing? If they're truly praying for you in your need, especially in your spiritual needs, that's what St. John is getting at. Here's how the church is supposed to treat one another. Restore one another when they sin. We know. Any thoughts or questions? Okay. Oh, yes, thank you. There is sin that leads to death. I overlooked that. What about the sin that leads to death? I think he's talking... Unbelief, absolutely. It's what Jesus was talking about when he said all the sins and transgressions of men can be forgiven except the sin against the Holy Spirit. That's the stubborn, persistent unbelief. That's what happens when, when a community isn't trying to restore a brother. It's allowing them to continue in that sin. And unbelief, unrepentance, is what leads to eternal death, the unforgivable sin. That's right. Yeah, I think what he's saying is we pray for those within the church. We're no, not that we're not concerned, but that's their business at that point. I don't have a clear answer. I don't know the answer to that question. Why, why does he say, he's, he's, he's saying, I'm not talking about that. He didn't say, don't pray for him. He said, I'm not talking about that. Right. Yep. That's right. Yep. Yep. Other questions? What else do we know according to verse um, 18? We know that everyone who is born of God does not keep on sinning. But he who was born of God, uh, was born of God, God protects him. And the evil one does not touch him. We know we don't keep on sinning. Uh, wait a minute, if we're honest with ourselves, we do know that we keep on sinning. This sounds like perfectionism, the, the belief that if you know the answers, you can become holier and holier and holier until you're no longer sinning. That's not what St. John is talking about here. He's dealt with this issue a couple of times. Already in, in um, chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, he said, we heard it again this morning. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. 1 John 3, verses 4 through 6. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins. And in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or knows him. To keep on sinning. Talking about 
unrepentance or impenitence. If you keep on sinning and you don't feel guilty about that, if you keep on sinning and and you're not turning back to God, that's what leads to stubborn unbelief. That goes back to the, the sin that we just talked about. But notice what he also says. We know God will keep us in faith and protect us from the evil one. How do we know that God will protect us? How do we know that God will keep us in faith? How do we know? And if you lose your faith and you're turned over to the evil one, then what about your salvation? So this is a key component too. How do we know that God's going to keep us in faith? How do we know he's going to protect us from the evil one? John was the one who wrote in his gospel, chapter 10. Jesus said, I'm the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. My sheep follow me. I give them eternal life. I protect them from the evil one. As we know Jesus, the closer we get to Jesus, the closer he is to us, the more we know that he is going to protect us from the evil one. We know also in, in verse 19 that we're from God and the whole world lives in the power under the influence of the evil one. We know we're from God and we know the world out there is under the power and control of the devil. Wow, it's, it's facing reality, isn't it? It, it? Yeah, imagine, it's scary. Imagine what John's people were dealing with. We know we're from God, but we live in this world surrounded by people who don't know God. We know that we're from God, but these people keep leaving us. We know that there are rotten things happening in the world around us and that Satan is loose to do his thing. How do we know that we're from God? Should we be surprised? The things going on in the world around us today? I, I don't think so. If what John says is true, we know that the world lies under the control of the devil, well, we shouldn't be surprised at anything that's going on in the world around us. It's under his control. But then we remember the words of Jesus. The last words he said before he ascended into heaven. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples. Well, if he's got all authority, how is it that the, the evil one can still have power and control over what's going on in the world? Lance, are you going to... That's right. It seems to us that the evil one has control over what's going on in the world. But Jesus said, I even have control over that. I have control over what's going on in the Ukraine. I have control over what's going on in the pandemic. I have control over it all. But people are getting sick and people are still dying. 
And St. John is saying, yeah, the world around us is still under the control of the evil one. How can this be? I used to, to make calls on people at night in our evangelism program. And there was always a, a house with a, a gate that said, beware dog. And so you, you wonder whether you should go up to the front door or not. And as you're walking up to the front door, there's the dog. And the dog is on a chain. So how do you approach the house? You swing a wide circle around the, the, the dog so that the dog can't reach you. If you go right up the sidewalk, that dog's going to get you. I think that's what, what um, Jesus, what, what uh, St. John is saying to us today. Yeah, the world out there is under the control of the evil one, but he's on a chain. Jesus has defeated him. Jesus has all authority. Now, if you're stupid enough to walk up the sidewalk, he's going to get you. But Jesus has authority. Jesus has the power we know. So as we face the world around us once again, how are we going to walk? Where are we going to go? Are we going to put ourselves in the way of Satan? Or are we going to walk the way that he would have us walk? Want to talk about that one at all? <laughs> We're going to come here to get the help. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. Yeah. That's not who you are. Don't go there. The world is evil, and we shouldn't be surprised by what's going on. But we know that Jesus is still in control. He sits on his throne. He has power over all things. All things. Don't be afraid. What else do we know? Look at verse 20. We know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true. And we are in Him who is true. In His Son, Jesus Christ, He is the true God and He is eternal life. We know that Jesus is the Son of God. John has repeated that three times in this section. Remember the, the whole issue that John was dealing with is, is these people who said that spirit is good and, and uh, physical material is bad and Jesus or the Son of God could not become flesh and dwell among us. John is making a point one more time. We know this Jesus 
who died on the cross and rose again and is sitting at God's right hand, we know that He is the Son of God. And John hammered that in the beginning of his gospel when he said, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. In the beginning of this book, he repeats that again. It's all about the Word who became flesh. And that's important for us poor sinners. That Jesus became flesh, took our flesh upon himself, suffered and died in our place. We know that Jesus is true. That Jesus is true God. This Jesus. Remember, John was one of those sitting in the upper room that night before he died. And Jesus said, I am the way. And I am the truth. And I am the life. John knew it. He wanted these people to have that same confidence. We know that what Jesus has told us is true because he is truth. And he is the way. And he is the certainty of our salvation. We know Jesus has given us understanding, John says. Understanding that uh, Jesus has brought us into the faith. We, we have this because of those three witnesses. Remember we talked about them last week? The testimony of the three witnesses... There is the Spirit, the blood, and the water. The pastor took us to, to the importance of the Word and the sacraments. We have this understanding because we have the Word of God. We have the testimony of those three witnesses. We have Jesus. And so we know that we have eternal life. That's where the pre-Gnostics, those people that John was dealing with, that's where all the sects, that's where all of the, um, the modern-day cults and groups are, are, are going off the rails. Because they let go of this simple truth. We know Jesus. And because we know Jesus, we know we have everlasting life. We know it. Don't be concerned about it anymore, but live in that assurance every day as you go through the world. And so he comes to verse 21. Little children, and can't you picture the old pastor writing these words to people that he had baptized and people that he confirmed and taught people that he dearly loved. One more time, he says, little children, keep yourselves from idols. The threat of idolatry was, was critical in those days. Re remember that they were surrounded by polytheism, the, the Pantheon, all of these gods out there, and they were being tempted like everybody else to worship those idols. And there was this rising fear that the emperor was now proclaiming himself to be a god. And he was threatening all kinds of terrible things against the church. Unless they recognized him as god, unless they would pledge their allegiance to him as a god, they were going to be suffering persecution. So right at the end of this book, John is saying to them one time, one more time, 
Be careful about idolatry. Don't give in to the threats of the evil one. You know what you believe. Don't go there. Is idolatry still an issue for us today? Oh, yeah. You better believe it is. Oh, we're not bowing down to statues. And we're certainly not declaring our government leaders as gods. But is idolatry for us real? It looks like our wallet. It looks like our houses. It looks like our cars, our investments. It looks like like our the people in our lives that we love. What does idolatry look like today? It looks just like me. You see, Luther once used a Latin expression. It was called incurvatus in se. Incurvatus in se means so wickedly turned in on ourselves that we make ourselves into an idol. We live as if we matter most and God doesn't matter at all. We're free to do whatever we think whenever we want to. Isn't that idolatry as well? And isn't that the root of all the other sins in our lives as well? When, when I make myself God, I decide what's right and wrong. I decide what I want to do and what I want to say and what I want to think. The worst idolatry is incurvatus in se, turned in on ourselves. And so with this, this last word, John says to them, keep yourselves from the idols. Don't go there. And why? Because you know Jesus. You've got that absolute certainty. You don't need idols. You don't need anything else. You got Jesus. What a powerful way to wind down a book. Any questions or thoughts about it? Pastor said we were going to go to Second John and Third John, and then he made some silly comment, joking, tongue in cheek. He said there's nothing in them, so we don't really need to study. That's not true. You know, we we think that we think that Second John was kind of the cover letter for First John. We think that Third John was really a, a personal kind of letter to Gaius. Um, we don't have time to go through them, but but read them through as well because. Clearly, God is speaking to us in 2nd and 3rd John also. Let's close with a word of prayer. We pray together, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all. Amen.